Good morning, Trinity Church. It is good to see you this morning, and Merry Christmas, or as we're learning to say, Merry Christ Mass, a celebration of Jesus. So my name is Doug. I'm your intern uh, pastor during this transformative transition, and uh, this Christmas season, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we're taking time to think through who is the Christ of Christmas. Last week, we looked at the fact that Gabriel came to Mary and said, this baby boy that is going to be born in Bethlehem is going to be the son of man. He's going to be a human being. But Gabriel also pointed out to them, to Joseph and Mary, that Jesus was going to be the son of God. Pretty radical concept in any culture at any time. But uh, today we want to take some time to think about that aspect of who Jesus is, the son of God. So if you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, would you open them to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. This is not a, a classic Christmas passage, but it is a passage that teaches us about how Jesus is fully God and fully man. When Gabriel came to Mary, she responds to his announcement about this phrase and says, well, how, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. As we think about that this morning, and as we consider its implications for us, and, and really for all of humanity in general, let me introduce you to a fascinating man and, and an intriguing work that he went about. His name is uh, Richard Neve, and he's a medical artist. He's co-author of the book Making Faces Using Forensic and archaeological evidence. Guys, if we can leave that up for just a little bit, that would be great. Not long ago, Dr. Neve, who has recreated different uh, faces of individuals throughout history, wondered what it would have been like to look at a first-century Jewish man and possibly even to think about what Jesus might have looked like. So he, uh, he located three uh, well-preserved skulls from the same geographical area and area of, uh, of Jesus, and he, uh, he put them through a series of tests. He used a computerized tomography, so he's taking slices of the skulls, uh, x-ray slices, to determine uh, the different uh, minute details about each one of them. He employed specialized computer programs that evaluated information about known thickness of tissue and muscles. And he used anthropological data to uh, verify the results, and he made a three-dimensional digital reconstruction of the face using uh, nose and lips and eyelids following the underlying muscles. And uh, he even used archaeological information, uh, site uh, information, uh, pictographs of what uh, their uh, skin tone would have looked like and uh, the hair and the color of the eyes. And, and shockingly, it was not a, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus or individual, and he came up with uh, what a first-century Jewish man might have looked like based on these three, uh, three skulls, and, and I brought with me the picture of what he came up with. Would you like to see it? So this is the picture of a first-century Middle Eastern man. Looks like a pretty ordinary guy. In fact, 
if this were the face of Jesus, and he didn't say it was, but it's representative of that. It's, it's such an ordinary face, you could find individuals in the Middle East who look like that today. Very, very typical. So what a shock it must have been to Jesus' contemporaries <laughs> when he said, if you've seen the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. I am the Son of God, fully man, fully God. What a shock. People don't go around saying that. One of the times that Jesus claimed this identity was when he was walking through Solomon's colonnade, which was a part of the temple, big, long columns, huge walking area, and a group of Jewish people, Jewish men came up to him, and they said, you've been keeping us in suspense long enough. If you're the Messiah, just tell us outright. And he said, guys, I, I did. Have you not seen the works that I've done? Ordinary Joes don't go around raising the dead and curing incurable diseases. My works testify to who I am. But you know, the real problem, he said to them, isn't that you haven't seen the works. It's that you just don't choose to believe. And that's because you're not part of my flock. You're not one of my sheep. He went on to say in that passage that sheep hear the voice of their shepherd. In the Middle East, they literally know their shepherd by his voice. And they follow me. And he said, you guys are choosing to not believe. And at that point, he shoves them in the, into the deep end of his theological point. And he says, I have the power and the right to give to my followers eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of the hand of my father. They are eternally secure when they come to me. Now, how could he say that? How could he conclude that? He said in the passage, and the reason is because I and the father are one not just in purpose, but in essence. At that, the Jews scattered to look for stones. And John 10, 31 picks up the story there and says, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, look, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of those are you going to stone me? And their answer is, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself to be God. They got it so clearly. Jesus enunciated this identity throughout his ministry. And they balked at the thought that a mere man could be God. That is a very natural assumption. God is God, we are not, right? We've heard that phrase off and on theologically, and you can almost hear their thoughts. Come on, Jesus, we grew up with you. We played kick the gourd in Galilee together. We splashed water in your face at the river uh, Jordan picnic. Do you not remember these things? We learned the Torah together in the uh, schools, in the synagogue. We laughed at each other's jokes. How can you, Jesus, a mere man, be God? I think people today have that same struggle. Perhaps you know somebody who's wrestling with this thought. It may be that you're here this morning and you feel a little bit unsure about it as well. But keep in mind, even Jesus' disciples struggled with that. One of the other stories that we find in John 14 is Jesus telling his disciples, look, guys, I'm going away soon, and, uh, and I want to comfort your hearts. I want you to know that if you believe in God, you can also believe in me. 
and I'm going away, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and when I do, I'm going to come back and take you to be with myself so that where I am you may be also, and, and you know where I'm going. Thomas, good old Thomas, who can always be relied on to question the status quo, says to him, wait a second, we don't know where you're going. How could we know the way? Where's our triptych, if you're old enough to remember that? Where's our map? Where's our GPS coordinates? We don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. And Jesus' response should uproot the thinking of all who hear it. He responds three times with the statement, I am. That same term for the Almighty that God gives Moses as Moses prepares to take the people of Israel out of Egyptian, Egyptian slavery, that same title he says three times, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. In other words, Jesus said, the path to God and eternity is me. If you want to know the way, you need to know me. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you knew me, you would also know the Father. And that statement made their ears tingle and their minds reel, and you can just hear them saying, well, wait, 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 what? What did he just say? Listen carefully to Jesus' reply in John 14, 9. Jesus says, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? Now, pause for a second. Think about that statement. How does God indwell us? Through his Holy Spirit. But Jesus says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe in me. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. That is an important theological statement for us. The Father is in Jesus, and Jesus is in the Father. This is the clear message that we declare at Christmas time. This is what makes Christianity stand out among all world religions. This is what makes Christianity more than an ideology. It's more than uh, moral behavioral guidelines. It's more than just compassionate, caring actions or, or moral values with love being at the top of the pile. And it is precisely because Jesus is in the Father and because he and the Father are one, that our lives as Christ's followers are forever changed. And that's what brings us to Hebrews 1. So I hope you still have your Bibles open to Hebrews 1. I want to share with you this morning three ways that that reality changes everything for you and I. So that as we leave here this morning, we have a greater sense of what Christmas really is all about. Take a look at verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 1. And here we find that as the Son of God, Jesus is God's final and fullest communication to all of humanity. There is no other message for us. The author of Hebrews writes, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he also created the world. you want to know God better? Spend time with Jesus. Listen to his words. Walk with him. Worship him. Get to know him. 
Because God has spoken finally and fully through God the Son. If you use Google, you can be thankful to uh, Larry Page and Sergey Brin. Did you realize it's been around for 34 years? They created Google in 1998. And ever since then, we have heard the phrase, just Google it, right? Standing over here before I came in this morning, I used Google. (laughs) I wanted to remind myself of a term that is used uh, in our culture frequently. And I'm standing there, I just Googled it, right? If you want to know more about God, if you want to understand his nature, if you want to understand his purposes and his plans for humanity, who he is, his character, anything about God, you need to just Jesus it. Right? Just Jesus it. Look at verse 1. The fact is, God loves to communicate with us. And he says, long ago, think Old Testament, God spoke to the Jewish people at different times and through prophets. So he spoke through Elijah, he spoke through Deborah, he spoke through Isaiah, and and many others to give us information about himself. But it says he spoke in various ways. Now, this is an interesting Greek word. It's polumeros, which means with many parts or fragments. If you've ever put together a Lego set, that's what you did. Many parts and fragments. And you're putting this whole thing together, and in short, God spoke a word here and and there, now and then, a little bit to some, more to others. some at one time, some at another. And he does that in, in a fragmentary, fragmentary way in the Old Testament. In fact, one commentator put it this way. We'll put this up on the screen for you. All was not revealed to just one prophet. But one received one portion of revelation and another another. To Noah was revealed the section of the world to which Messiah should belong. To Abraham, the nation to Jacob the tribe, to David and Isaiah the family, to Micah the town of nativity, to Daniel the exact time of his arrival, to Malachi the coming of his forerunner and his second advent, through Jonah his burial and resurrection, through Isaiah and Hosea his resurrection, each only knew in part, but when that which was perfect came in, Messiah, that which which was in part was brought to fulfillment." This is why Jesus could walk on the Emmaus Road and say to those disciples, hey, let me take you from Genesis all the way through Malachi and show you me in the Old Testament. Because each book builds and builds and builds until finally today, we have this final revelation in Jesus. Look at verse 2. In these last days, think 2022, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. And folks, the verb tenses here are all in the past tense. He's done communicating. It is through the word of God, the completed word of God, the words of Jesus Christ, all of the Old Testament that resonates with who he is. And the point is that God chose to give his fullest and his final message to the world through Jesus, which means we do not need a second book of Jesus Christ, as some would tell you today. He is the final authoritative word. And verse 2 goes on to say that God affirms this reality, this finality, with two important statements. Look at there, there in your text. God made Jesus the heir of all things, and God made all of creation through Jesus. And what it means is this, that at the end of time, Jesus inherits everything material from the Father. 
everything that has been created becomes his inheritance. And at the very beginning of time, God made everything material through Jesus. And this is truly a remarkable statement of heritage and inheritance. I want you to think about this with me for a little bit. It means that Jesus brackets both ends of human existence. At the beginning of all time, everything is made through him and for him. At the end of all time, he becomes the heir of all things. So that everything that we know, everything that we love, everything we experience is because of Jesus. And in the future, everything will be inherited by Jesus. My grandfather was an electrician at General Electric uh, in Michigan. He was the guy that they would call to listen to all the machines and tell them, fix that part. Because he knew everything so well. And one of the gifts that was given to me as an inheritance was one of his screwdrivers. Now you might say to yourself, gosh, that doesn't seem like a really big deal, but it is a big deal to me because my grandfather handed it to me. That's important to me, but it's not anything like inheriting all things. So think about it. It doesn't matter what you look at. Jesus is the creator of all things, and he inherits all things. Look at Colossians 1, 15 through 20 up on the screen. It says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, which in Greek means the most excellent of, over all of creation. For in him all things were created, things in, in heaven and on earth, visible and in, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him, and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is so important for us to get at Christmas time. And the reason for that is there are many things in our world that vie for our attention, especially this time of year. All kinds of things from special occasions to special people to special gifts to special jobs to special things that we own, even special ideas or philosophies that we use as a part of our philosophy of how we live life. Some of the ones that I've heard over the years that I like, of these ideas that we can buy into and use as a, a guide for our life, one came from Jonathan Winters. He says, if your ship doesn't come in, swim out to it. It's like, yeah, I like that. That's a good philosophy. Park Ryder, early is on time, on time is late. If you've been in the military, you know this. And late is downright rude, he added. Amelia Earhart, the most difficult thing is the decision to act. The rest is tenacity. Dolly Parton, don't get so busy making a living that you forget to make a life. And Julia Child, a party without a cake is really just a meeting. <laughs> there are a lot of things that we can buy into in our world, right? And you can, you can categorize those for yourself. But in the end, it is the words of Jesus that call out to our souls. 
It is the words of Jesus that conditions our hearts for eternity because he is the Son of God. But folks, he's so much more than just God's communication to us. Look at the next few verses in Hebrews. Verses 3 through 7 tell us, As the Son of God, Jesus upholds all things around us, before us, and after us. This is the baby born in Bethlehem. He upholds all things around us and before us and after us. And notice it says in verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. And that name, by the way, is the Son of God. Romans tells us this, that he was declared the Son of God at his resurrection, the name he was given. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. And again, when he makes the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And by the way, the word begotten there means one of a kind in the Greek language. It doesn't mean generated. It means there is nothing else like him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This is such a beautiful picture in the Greek language. It says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The word radiance there is daybreak. Any of you morning people like to get up and see the sunrise? I will if I have to. (laughs) If I have a meeting, you know, I'll get up, I'll be there. And it's amazing when you walk outside and the sun is just coming up, right? And you see that beautiful glow along the hilltops. And then the first beams of light coming out and beginning to warm the earth and just illumine the earth. And the Bible says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the daybreak of God's glory. Now, this is talking about essence, because I brought a small lamp with me this morning, one of my favorite camping lamps. But I've noticed that when you turn it on at night, in particular, you can't really separate the lamp from the beam. You can also go like this you got a nice little lamp there. But they are so connected that I cannot have the brilliance without the bulb. And the bulb has no impact without the brilliance. Would you agree with that? They are both connected intimately in terms of essence. And in the same way, the Bible tells us that the Father cannot be experienced without the Son. And the Son cannot be that brilliance without the Father. They are related intimately. Look at these two verses. John 1, very first part of John's gospel. He says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from from the Father full of grace and truth. So all of the glory of who God is becomes expressed in Jesus. They are one and the same. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. We looked at this during our series, our uh, transformative journey series. It says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So he radiates God's magnificence, his weightiness, his goodness, his character. It's all in the person of Christ. 
but he is also the exact imprint of God's nature. Notice that in the text? So consider these balancing ideas of Jesus' nature. As God's radiance, he is one with the Father, but as God's imprint, he is distinct from the Father, and yet an exact representation of him. The original word in the uh, Greek language for exact image is hypostasis, which means a mental perception of the real thing. Kind of like this. Norman Rockwell, when he decided to do a self-portrait, this was his painting of himself painting himself. Right? And when we see this, if we only saw the picture, we would say to ourselves, oh, that's Norman Rockwell. And he did that when he painted the picture of himself. We get this mental image of the real thing. And so the author of Hebrews picks this word, hypostasis, and he says, Jesus is not only the radiance of the glory of God, the exact essence, but he is also the exact imprint. He gives us a mental perception of who God is. Aren't those beautiful descriptions put together? One is essence, the same. One is distinct imagery. And the author brings them together and he says, this is the person of Christ. This is who you worship at Christmas. And because of this personhood, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That is, he maintains it. He's a conservationist. He takes good care of it. In fact, he moves it forward toward its ultimate destiny, all by the word of his power. And that can seem like a very abstract idea, can't it? So let me give you a concrete thought on it. Ancient Greek philosophers, Renaissance artists, um, astronomers, modern-day architects, all have one thing that they operate on in common. They have what they call the golden ratio. Have you ever heard of that? It's also called the divine proportion. This is a picture of it. It, it literally is the number. It's a precise number, 1.61803399. That is woven throughout all of nature. This divine proportion, golden ratio. And it's considered truly unique. According to astrophysicist Mario Livio, some of the greatest mathematical minds of all times, from Pythagoras to Euclid in ancient Greece, through the middle, uh, medieval Italian mathematician Leonardo of Pisa, the Renaissance astronomer Johannes Kepler, to present-day scientific figures such as Oxford physicist Roger Penrose, have spent endless hours poring over this simple ratio and its properties. But he goes on to say, the fascination with this golden ratio is not confined just to mathematicians. Biologists, artists, musicians, historians, architects, psychologists, and theologians have pondered and debated the basis of its ubiquity. In other words, its presence everywhere and its appeal. In fact, he says, it is probably fair to say that the golden ratio has inspired thinkers of all disciplines like no other number in the history of mathematics. This spiral shape, if we can throw that back up there, gentlemen. So this uh, shell shape is what gives us a, a conception of it. This uh, author says it is typically represented as a regular spiral that is defined by a series of squares and arcs, each forming golden rectangles. 
This spiral shape resembles growth patterns observed in nature, and its proportions are reminiscent of those in human bodies, which suggests the presence of a universal order underlying the world, thereby being dubbed golden or divine. This is not a Christian author. All of these individuals throughout history that have looked at this idea have said there is something in our universe that just kind of defines the beauty and the order of it. And they called it a golden ratio or divine proportion because they recognized that everything has some connection to it, some semblance to it that speaks of this underlying order. Where did that come from? Where, where did this reality begin? I can tell you it's not through evolution. That's way too complex. The scriptures tell us it came through Jesus Christ through the power of his word. When he created all things, he simply spoke this proportion into being and caused it to regulate all of our universe, all of our world, all of our flowers, all of our shells, all of our bodies, all of the animals. Everything has built into it this proportion. And if he can do that kind of thing, he can do anything, which is why this next statement is so important for us. Look in verse 3. And making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is, he creates this covenant of cleansing. This was the word I looked up backstage on Google. It's the word catharsis. You ever heard that term? Yeah. So let me give you the definition online. Catharsis is a release of emotional, mental, spiritual tension. As an uh, as after an overwhelming experience that restores or refreshes the spirit. The author of Hebrews picks catharsis to say Jesus, who has the power to do anything, who created all things, who becomes the heir of all things, he cleansed us of all of the, um, all of the junk, the emotion, the stress. And, and this is a unique term, by the way. We have a lot of terms for salvation. This one talks about the after effect of it. How it, it takes all of that junk, the shame and the guilt and the regret and everything, and removes it. Amen. Relieves the tension. Praise God. Verses 4 through 7 tell us the outcome of his doing that for us. It says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Or again, I'll be to him a father, he'll be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. And of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So we know that Jesus created the angels. Would you agree with that? He made all things. But for a period of time when he became human, he was subjugated in terms of creative order. God, angels, humanity. He became less than the angels for a period of time. Hebrews 2.9 says this, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, but we see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that the grace of God, by the grace, he might taste death for everyone. What should we do with all of this? 
Well, I think as a beginning point, we should stand in awe of Jesus whenever we watch an evening sunset and admire the canvas of colors. I think that whenever we go skiing to the top lift of Tahoe and we look down at that beautiful blue lake, we should worship Jesus because he made it. When you drive into Yosemite Valley and you park at that first parking lot and you look out there and you see the whole valley spread ahead of you if there's no fire, we should stand in awe of who Jesus is. When we put our toes into the Pacific Ocean and we watch the pelicans glide by and the dolphins surfing in the surf, we should glorify and worship Jesus because he made it all. But we can also be thankful and grateful that we have a chance at real living because he has cleansed us. And I think lastly, like the angels, we should worship him because he upholds all things before us and around us and after us. Look at the last point. Verses 8 through 14. Jesus oversees the final dissolution and renewal of all things. Now, before I read this uh, text for us, I want to remind you or just point out to you, this is the only passage in the Bible where God the Father is recorded speaking directly to the Son. Other places we have God speaking about the Son coming, the Old Testament prophecies, but here in Hebrews 1, God the Father speaks directly to the Son, and he says, here is who you are, which is a great passage if we're ever wanting to share who Jesus is as the Son of God. This is a great place to go to because it says, of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness. You've hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And then it goes back almost to verses 2 and 3, and it says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they can be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all ministering, are not angels all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? They're on your side. God says some stunning things about Jesus here. Look at verses 8 and 9. Your throne, O God is forever and ever, and the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. If you watched the funeral of uh, the Queen of England, you saw her casket there with the flag on it, but you also saw the orb and the scepter laid on top of the casket. And before she was placed in the grave, they were removed because those are the symbols of her rule, what her rule is like. And here, God says to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and your scepter is of uprightness. Your scepter is of uprightness. The, the type of kingdom and government you have will be straightforward and true and equitable, set a good and straight course to follow. That's what the word upright means. He can be counted on to do the right thing to lead the way faithfully, to be honest and direct with his followers, to be reliable. So if you've ever doubted the motives of a political leader, if you have ever um, wondered about the honesty of a school district superintendent, if you've ever questioned the faithfulness of a friend, if you've ever uh, wondered about the wisdom of a counselor, you don't need to do that with Jesus. 
because his scepter is uprightness, and he loves righteousness. He hates wickedness. This is wonderful to meet someone like this. This is what our hearts crave for, is someone who is that reliable, that trustworthy, that straightforward, that fair, that proper, with everyone around them. Anyone Jesus ever met, he was equitable and virtuous and reliable. They could trust in him. And he will do the same with you and I, even until the end of the world. Look at verse 10 one more time. The Father emphasizes that Jesus was the creator of all things on earth and in the heavens. You laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. But he goes on to say, they will all perish, but he will remain. And he gives us some imagery here. He gives us the imagery of an old, worn-out pair of jeans. Now, these are not quite worn out yet. These are my work jeans. But he says, the earth is like this. One day, you know what? They're going to be tossed out. One day, that old jacket that you've got, the old Columbia jacket that wears out at the elbows because of the fabric, he said, the world's going to be like this. You roll it up, and you donate it, maybe, or you throw it out. It's like an old T-shirt. One of my paint T-shirts. I pull it out whenever I'm doing work at the house. It's got holes under the armpits. My wife points it out continually. You have a hole under the armpit. I don't care. I'm just working in it. The earth is going to be like that. And instead, God is going to create something brand new. Right? The old is going to be gone. He uses terms like destroyed, removed, but literally, at the end of time, this world that we get so engaged with the universe that we become so uh, admiring of is going to be taken like those old jeans that wear out like that old t-shirt exchanged for something brand new and God is going to give that to us through Jesus Christ. So you might ask yourself, when is that going to happen? Because I'm ready right now. Let me give you one last passage. Revelation 21. First verse. I saw a new heaven... And a new earth. For the first heaven and the earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I always lament that as a surfer. It's like, gosh, I don't know about that part of it. And I know God has purposes, but he says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, just like in Genesis. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There shall be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, listen to this, I am making everything new. You have to imagine this world where nothing is old. Nothing is broken. You don't have to pull weeds when you are taking care of your lawn. Things don't die. I am making all things new. Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. So what do we do with this? What's the takeaway? There's a few things. One is, when we are weak, 
we can turn to the source of unabated strength, Jesus, who continues on unabated. There is no diminishing of his authority, of his power, of his character. And we find the help that we need in times of need. And when we think about the future, we need to make sure that our faith remains firm in Jesus. So many people today are struggling with deconstruction of their faith. You probably have heard the phrase, deciding I don't believe anymore. I think there are other things to pursue. Jesus isn't holding my interest like he used to do. But look at the very next chapter in Hebrews. If you still have Hebrews open, look at the first verse of Hebrews chapter 2. Because the author says, on the basis of all that we just talked about, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, it was attested to us who heard And while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will, at present we do not see everything in subjection to Jesus, verses 8 and 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that the grace of God for it he may taste death for everyone. Folks, this is the Christ child we worship at Christmas. This is the Son of God who is God's final and fullest, ultimate statement of communication to us. This is the Son of God who upholds all things before us, around us, and after us. And it's the Son of God who oversees the final dissolution and renewal of all things. I'd like to invite you to pray with me this morning and worship this Christ child. Heavenly Father, I think this is a message that uh, our world needs to hear. But we as your followers need to hear it as well because today uh, the person of Christ is diminished in so many ways around us. Father, uh, the church has become, and its message has become not only marginalized on the page, we're off the page in our world today. But in not understanding these truths, in not following them, we as a world have lost something incredibly valuable. Father, we have lost contact with our creator God, Jesus Christ, who created all things and is the heir of all things. Father, we as a world have forgotten the cleansing that you give us, this catharsis from our sin and the impact in our lives and how our world needs that today. And Father, we have lost track with the fact that there is an eternity that you will renew all things and how our hearts look forward to that. So, Father, as followers of Christ here this morning, we pray that you would renew in us this understanding that Jesus is more than just the Son of Man. He is the Son of God who tells us your word, who upholds all things, and who finally will bring all things to a right and proper conclusion and give us an eternity that is filled with goodness and newness and the presence of himself. And so, Father, we worship you with that this morning. We pray these things and thank you for them in the name of Jesus, the Son of God.